0: Thank you very much, Sam. And thank you very much to the London Review of Books for uh, inviting us along this evening. It's a tremendous honour to be invited to mark this 40th birthday. Um, And um, uh, we were both delighted uh, to have this opportunity to talk about um, our work. Um, We're going to talk about political crisis, as Sam mentioned, but specifically the crisis of liberalism, whatever we might mean by that, um, and what the current crisis of liberalism might consist of, and how writers might attempt to try and narrate that crisis and to make sense of some of that crisis. Um, There's been quite a lot of discussion in the public sphere, in academia, in policy world, joined also by the likes of Vladimir Putin even, that liberal values are in decline, that post-liberalism is the future of some kind, movements like blue labour, various forms of populism that uh, challenge liberalism, Uh, on uh, its particular uh, grounds of procedural justice and uh, rule of law. Um, But there's also, I think, something which I think we might come back to, which is a certain irony of the present moment that we're living through, which is that in some ways aspects of British liberal democracy are um, in uh, motion and are uh, active like we've never seen in uh, many decades The courts are now very actively involved in upholding rule of law in society. We see a separation of powers uh, between the executive, legislative and judiciary uh, right now, the like of which uh, uh, Britain has not seen um, uh, in living memory. Um, And we see huge levels of political mobilisation, including by liberals. Uh, Jean-Claude Juncker said in an interview with The Independent today that Britain is now home to the largest pro-European movement in the whole of Europe. Um, So there is a question about the extent to which, if liberalism is in crisis, what does it mean to say liberalism is in crisis when in some ways the defenders of liberalism and the instruments of liberalism are active uh, like we've not seen uh, recently? Now, of course, the enemies of liberalism, whoever they might be, the opponents of liberalism, are uh, energised by this. Um, Boris Johnson is doing extremely well in the opinion polls at the moment. But I suppose one way we might uh, come at this question of the crisis of liberalism is that although liberalism is everywhere right now, it's very active, it's very energized, it's very vocal, it no longer seems capable of providing the grounds of consensus for society. It's claimed to be able to provide the uh, basic framework, the basic rules of society, the basic foundation of the game of society and of the economy it seems to be challenged. Now, the reason I mention that is that I think this brings us to uh, Katrina's book, which is uh, In the Shadow of Justice, which is a- an astonishing history of a particular articulation of liberalism. Um, and it puts that articulation back in its social, political and economic history. That particular articulation is the one that she identifies as liberal egalitarianism. It is led by uh, the uh, heroic figure of John Rawls between the 1950s right up to the uh, uh, 1990s. Um, Personally, I was slightly force-fed political philosophy as an undergraduate at Cambridge about uh, 20-odd years ago, and that was basically what was presented as political philosophy. And until I read Katrina's book, I hadn't realised some of the struggles, some of the politics, some of the history, uh, the culture that surrounded it. So it brings an abstract debate down to earth. It puts it back into the particular crises, conflicts and upheavals uh, of its times, rather than allowing it to remain at this level of transcendent, ahistorical abstraction. And it's a really remarkable piece of scholarship, and it completely changed my understanding of a set of ideas that had been very familiar to me uh, for over 20 years. So um, we want to start tonight partly just because I think it's worth exploring how some of these ideas relate to crises of liberalism generally, but also our present crisis. I want to start just by asking Katrina to talk us through the story of what was this particular idea of liberalism, mm-hmm. and how did it relate to a particular moment in history uh, where you, you tell the story of, of, of how it sort of rose and, and, and fell?
2: Yeah, thank you, Will, for that very generous introduction to the book, and thank you all for coming to talk about crisis with us. Um, so my book is... A history, as you've said, um, of liberal egalitarianism, which is a form of political philosophy that really took shape in the 1970s, after the philosopher John Rawls, most influential political philosopher in the United States of his generation, after he published his book, A Theory of Justice, in 1971. Now, the book, uh, the story that my book tells, there are two different stories. One is this success story. And it's a story of how this abstract philosophy came became a kind of a paradigm um, for all liberalism within the human and social sciences within academia in many ways. So in the 1970s, Rawls's theory became the touchstone, the referent for philosophers talking about politics in all sorts of different ways. So it was published during another crisis of liberalism of the 1970s. And many philosophers who had come to be interested in politics through another crisis of the Vietnam War um, look to Rawls's theory as a kind of touchstone, a way, a system of, a philosophical system, a vision of liberal consensus that would allow them to make sense of the disorders they were witnessing. So we see this kind of interesting moment where there's a ton of political disorder, political crisis, and what political philosophers do is they try to abstract from that moment so we can maybe go on to talk about different ways in which we respond to political crisis do we abstract do we go into it in or what what do we do as thinkers as writers when we are looking at political crisis so what these philosophers did is they looked to this 600 page book to essentially make sense of the world around them so in Rawls's book he sets out a, an account of a just society a set of liberal principles that would help Citizens judge their institutions. He s- talked a lot about how to limit inequality, and the kind of liberalism that really comes out of Rawls's theory is very concerned with what kinds of inequalities are permissible in a just society. Now, there is this success story. This philosophy goes on to really dominate all of political thought um, within many universities in Britain and the US. It becomes the Facility with Rawlsianism becomes the price of admission into elite institutions. And that, it becomes a very capacious way of looking at the world. I mean, it is, liberalism in general is a capacious ideology. We have so many different forms of liberalism. But this form of political philosophy in particular became incredibly capacious. And as a result, it domesticated all sorts of different ways of dealing with the various political crises that was seen in the 70s and 80s, crisis of decolonization, environmental crisis. These are all taken in by liberal political philosophers who use their tools to think about them, but they squeezed out other ways of looking at the world. So this is a success story, but is also, I, as I argue in my book, a kind of a ghost story because Rawls's theory was actually born not in the 70s, but in the 1940s and 50s. So it comes out of a moment of post-war liberalism after the Second World War, and it comes to dominance in a completely different era under when the conditions under which it emerged and the conditions it described were gone. So I think this raises all sorts of questions for us about the relevance of these kinds of ideas, born of this post-war moment today. So Rawls's theory really lives on within political philosophy. Um, liberal egalitarianism remains a dominant sort of liberalism but I think today as we now think about not only our own current k- political crisis Brexit here but the kinds of transformations we've seen over the last few decades the rise of neoliberalism um, the new right from, well, we, we would also, we were talking before, the LRB nicely coincides with these 40 <laughs> years of the same time as the rise of neoliberalism. I'm not sure what that tells us. Um, but, you know, so as we think about those transformations that we've seen, how the state has transformed, how the welfare state has been yeah. transformed, how certain institutions have been hollowed out, what does it mean to try to grab on to these kind of liberal ideas that may have run their course. And mm. I think liberal egalitarianism is one of those liberal visions that it's up for grabs whether or not it can help us make sense of our own political crises today. It, there's,
0: a very, there's a sort of strange, I mean, it's not really a contradiction, but there's a there's a strange um, ambiguity in the way you characterise this particular tradition, where on the mm. one hand, they're desperately looking for some sort of abstract foundation on which everyone can agree. In mm-hmm. a sense that's the sort of mm-hmm. the, the sort of well not utopianism but certainly the optimism of of liberalism is that it should be possible for everyone in society to agree on the basic th- framework of, of a society. And that, I think, when we talk about the crisis today, that, I think, plainly, when you think about the way in which, you know, a referendum is pitted against a parliament in various ways, Mm -hmm. that clearly is, is, is something that is in, is in, is in serious trouble if, if not, if not, um, um, fatally (laughs) wounded. Um, so these liberals that you're talking about, on the one hand, they had this sort of, Great faith in abstraction. I mean, second only really to neoclassical economists mm-hmm. in their sort of belief that, that sort of abstract reasoning would sort of get you to, 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 to some sort of desirable outcome. On the other hand, they were repeatedly accused of sort of somehow kind of picking up um, a kind of um, 1950s, 1960s American New Deal slash Johnson Great Society and sort of effectively kind of importing it into their models without really sort of knowing they were doing it. So on the one hand, they were both sort of too radical and not radical enough.
2: Yeah. No, I think that's I- exactly right. They are both too radical and not radical enough. And I think the ways in which they are that, that um, binary plays out in their theories changes at different moments. And so at, in the 1950s and 60s, the assumptions that Rawls baked into his theory so for example economic growth a kind of general mm. liberal optimism about um the pos- the, the Reform, So civil rights, racial liberalism would be achieved through the civil rights movement. All these assumptions about the future were very much baked into his theory. And they, they seemed political and ideological at the time in that they were liberal rather than leftist or on the right. Um, but they were also, they seemed kind of like common sense, but those things no longer really seem like common sense. So what, what does it mean to think about those kinds yeah. of theories now when they no longer seem... Well, there's a sort us. of, I
0: suppose. I mean, if you think about the sort of what, where does where does abstraction and bureaucracy kind of collide? It's in some sort of idea of technocracy, for, in a sense, mm. the, of an idea of a of a form of authority that is not democratic, but which um, believes that its possession of reason, in some sense, mm-hmm. means that it is. Beyond dispute in some way, which of course is exactly the kind of charge that he's made against in, in, in these sort of, I wouldn't say unless we're living in the twilight of liberalism, it's a bit melodramatic, but in these sort of rather kind of late liberal phase, that's exactly the problem that the likes of Hillary Clinton or the Remain campaign face, was this idea that they would somehow sort of believe themselves to be sort of above or outside of mm-hmm, politics in mm-hmm. some way. Of, of politics in that visceral, conflictual mm-hmm. kind of sense. And there's a line in the book um, where you write, you, you talk about the communitarians who mobilised against... Well, it mobilised against rules, but they started to criticise the rules uh, from the 80s onwards. Uh, people like um, Waltzer, Nagel, Rorty. Uh, and, and you say, the critics suggested that liberal philosophers' commitment to consensus... And their focus on distributional decisions and procedure rather, rather than democratic control, it's a word we hear a lot these days, implied a tacit acceptance of technocracy and inequality. And you sort of hit when I read that, I just thought, well, you know, this is the sort of, this is the post-liberal critique. And it's actually, the post-liberal critique has been around, it, it didn't, it wasn't invented by David Goodhart. I mean, it, this, it's been around for, you know, this, this sort of, um, uh, this sort of critique of mm-hmm. the aloof, um, uh, uh, technocratic idea of liberalism is, is is quite old as well.
2: Yeah, there's kind of a paradox in this form of liberal egalitarianism that I think you nicely draw out there. That on the one hand, liberal political philosophers looked in the 1990s to have taken up a quite comfortable place, three, maybe two steps to the left of the new way. Um, they're not that much more in certain ways radical than aspects of New Labour. Um, and in that sense, they look par- exactly like this Kind of technocratic liberalism that we have come to see as maybe complicit in some of our current problems. On the other hand, they were, had very radical and demanding theories of inequality. And at the moment, I mean, we certainly think of ourselves as in this time of great inequality. We're looking around for solutions to deal with that. And I think they have also a number of solutions. So there's this kind of puzzle about how we think about this. And I think that filters down the liberal tradition in general. I mean, I think if you see various forms of left liberalism who have, um, that have, often made alliances (laughs) with more radical popular front left movements and so on, Um, that can look quite different from, say, Hillary Clinton's Mm. form of technocratic liberalism, which might look like the opposite and the uh, the opposition of any kind of left movement actually that is a good point for me to maybe ask you a little bit of your because you've written a lot about mm. technocracy mm. and about reason and about expertise um, and as you say this rejection of technocracy and liberalism goes back quite a long way but today it is very live mm. I mean we think about it all the time Um, we think about our current crisis all the time in terms of a crisis of expertise. We've had enough of experts. And Mm. do you, I mean, you've written a lot about this. Do you think that the current crisis is a kind of rejection of technocracy and expertise? And if that's the case, I mean, is it different from other kinds of Mm. previous rejections of technocracy Mm. that we've seen?
0: Well, I mean, I think, so one of the things that is different today, uh, which is one of the things that I'm I'm trying to articulate in my book, Nervous States, is that we now have an alternative to a a traditional, expert, um, liberal, technocratic um, way of knowing the world. Mm. And the alternative is that if experts in their traditional bureaucratic sense are those who try to provide consensual, valid pictures of the world, and again, this is what makes... Traditional expertise. If you think of sort of traditional liberal expertise, I'm talking about, say, the Office for National Statistics, which right. is that they want to, you know, they send out the census. They want to collect a certain amount of data so as to create an image of society, which everyone can agree on. Now, of mm-hmm. course, that is one of the things that has been sort of fracturing is that statistics no longer seem to be able to, 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 to achieve that level of consensus. And that's one of the things that, that interests me in the book is, is, is what are the, some of the both material and cultural forces against that? things like inequality is one of the, the material forces that, you know, if if half the population has had no increase in their welfare for, for 30 years, as is the case for, in the United States, why would sort of macroeconomic growth matter remotely? You know, to, to, so there are sort of certain problems there. But, but the, I think there's another thing which is new, which is an ideal of knowledge and an ideal of an alternative type of technocracy, which is much more attuned to trying to disrupt and to um, mobilize and to to, to undermine um, which is much more about trying to uh, sense change as and when it happens. It's much closer to what I discuss in the book. It's more of a sort of um, military sensibility, really, because it's much more about strategy. It's much more about sensing how things are right now. It's a t- slightly paranoid sensibility. And that's what things like data analytics and the affordances of the platform economy um, uh, allow is, uh, is, is what you might call a real-time approach to knowledge. So in that sense, I think that sort of why do we need... Newspapers or why do we need statisticians or experts in an age where it is possible to be able to collect data about the world and to sense what's going on in the world in a way that is in this sort of more of a kind of real time sensibility. So that's kind of like the argument that I, that I set out in, in, in my book. But I think that clearly, you know, the, the framing of, 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 of elite, of experts as elites, which is a populist framing is to mm. say, I mean, a sort of basic definition of populism is that it's a type of rhetoric which draws a line between, you know, this is how Cass Mudder and others define it. It's between some morally pure, homogenous, ordinary people and then those elites over there who are trying to screw you. Um, once experts get put on the other side of that line, then of course, then that has sort of disastrous implications for, for, for the authority of you know, basic things like news reporting, uh, expert analysis, and so on. So, I mean, I think that, I think that th- there are certain things which are which are new and are unprecedented. And I think that there is a – I think that this broad crisis of liberalism is also about changes in the, the, the sort of nature of knowledge in our society as well. It's not just that, of course. I mean, there are sort of economic dimensions.
2: Yeah, I mean, I want to pick up on something you just said about um – the ways in which there is does seem to be this other form of expertise so we tend to think of it that you know we've had enough of experts is the populist mm. or the right authoritarians or whatever we want to however we want to characterize the kind of um right-wing insurgency we mm. have seen recently so the, the usual idea is that they are opposed to experts but you see, you're suggesting that actually there is this other kind of expertise. Mm. So there's an expertise of the right almost. It's not just that expertise is something that we associate with liberal institutions over civil service, various forms of bureaucracy, the NHS, the press, mm. judges. There's another form of expertise.
0: Well, an expertise that is all about um, a type of first mover advantage in a sense. I mean, so um, strategy is about anticipating and um uh, uh combating um other people's strategies as much as anything else um the 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 ideal of knowledge at work in business schools a lot of the time for instance mm-hmm. is of being able to know things before other people have known them or being able to act on them or being able to turn them into products or being able to not get left behind so that if, if you, if, if you have an image of society that is in constant motion and is in, is where, um, as a constant competition, where losers are constantly getting eliminated, the challenge of expertise within that type of society is not one of trying to create a sort of neutral, valid picture that everyone can see them, recognize themselves in, but is about trying to grant advantages to this person rather than to this advantage this person so a sort of you know a, a, a sort of everyday um personal uh, form of expertise that is distinct to what you might call a neoliberal society which is something like life coaching or something like that which mm-hmm. is about in a sense, against a backdrop of of some kind of rivalry, some kind of having to achieve a strategy where one is going to achieve some kind of objective. So it's much more about living in a state of motion and about achieving a sort of um, a successful strategy rather than about creating a a sort of an objective picture.
2: So being a kind of political agent with good timing. Yeah. So, okay.
0: I mean, I write in the book about how... um, um, in a sense, you know, the sort of endpoint of a of, of this mentality would be something like high frequency trading, which, um, mm. where you know, the money is made in simply knowing something a split second before someone else. That's a very different idea of what knowledge is good for than the type of knowledge that you know a doctor or a or a, or a traditional liberal expert of the sort that you're talking about uh, would, would would suggest. But
2: so, I want to yeah. actually, given that we're probably all thinking a little bit about. Brexit. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's happened
0: uh, in the last 10 minutes. Uh, yeah. Rolling news is another kind of yeah. aspect of the kind of emotional <laughs> experience of Brexit. So
2: um, you've also written, as well as writing about um, experts and technocracy, you've also been writing um, quite a lot about who the Brexiteers mm. are and how this populist moment fits into the longer history of neoliberalism. Mm. So can you talk a bit about yeah, I mean, I
0: think, so I, I've done a couple of pieces in the, in the LRB over the last six months or so about, I suppose, that um, there's a curiosity of this moment, which is that within a, a regular liberal democracy with a kind of representative system of parliament, you know, someone wins an election, traditionally, and then they sort of, in some sense, um, are, achieve some kind of status as legitimate as somehow kind of having the right to act on behalf of everybody. Um, but there is a sort of strange faction that I've, I, I became interested in in a, in a piece I wrote I suppose about six months ago um, i can 't remember what it was called now, but then there was also a sort of the collection of, of, of piece small pieces on on how bad can it get, I think it was called in the lRB, um, but about a sort of faction of a, of a group of about twenty five percent of the electorate or so of the sort of no deal hard brexiteer mentality and I think one thing that has become clear which we, which we weren 't aware of um, when the f- referendum first happened. Is that this doesn't fit the sort of you know famous kind of left behind kind of image of the of the populist supporter at all, but is. Uh, a, often it's people who are older, people who are, who report that they are financially secure, people who are largely in England outside of London. Um, and so I wrote this, also wrote this blog post that we were talking about before on, on what was, I called England's Rentier Alliance of a group of these sorts of voters who were being appealed to by the Johnson camp and the, the, the the vote leave camp. Which themselves are backed by another type of sort of rentier capitalism of, um, of, 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 the hedge funds, of the private equity barons, of the kind of maverick entrepreneurs of the, the boss of, of, of water, uh, not waterstones. <laughs> 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 that would be good. Um, <laughs> we- Weatherspoons. Um, and, um, the, the, there is a sort of coming back to that question <laughs> of what though. type of, what <laughs> type of, um, sort of expo, what type of elite is this? What these people have is very large amounts of unproductive capital a lot of the time. Um, and what they desire of politics is a kind of breaking up of a kind of liberal order that they no longer consider to have legitimacy in some way. So that, I think that, that question of how politics, instead, instead of it being about the sort of, you know, Transcending of particular interest groups towards some idea of consensus, which would be something like the sort of you know optimistic Rawlsian vision, instead becomes a space of how particular relatively small factions that don't even aspire to represent anyone other than themselves um, use various tools to disrupt um, a, a, a sort of you know mm. a, a, what was not necessarily a, a very popular order, but nevertheless one which which operates in a certain ways. So I think that is is a sort of key part of this. This, um, uh, uh, you know, this sort of crisis of liberalism that we're talking about. But I mean, the, the new right were also, I mean, the, I mean, you write a bit about the sort of, you know, what happened from the 70s onwards and what was the kind of break of the 70s that effectively in that sort of ghost story you're telling, there doesn't, The 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 liberal the American liberal philosophers anyway they didn't they didn't really quite grasp the nature of the challenge or the nature of the threat that was emerging around them particularly while Nozick being one of them but also the the sort of rational choice um, free marketeers
2: yeah I think that's right I mean so uh, going back to American liberal political philosophy. They certainly, many of the crises of the 70s, the crisis of legitimacy, the kind of decline of the welfare state seemed to pass a lot of political philosophers by. They were really concerned with working out exactly well, refining their arguments about inequality and justice and consensus and so on in a way that meant that they slightly, you know, didn't pay as much attention as perhaps they might have. And certain things, particularly like the privatization of the state that you see in that period, really pass them by. But one of the things that I think we've also seen um, is a coming apart since the 1970s of an alliance that in a tacit alliance or a tacit cohabitation between people like the philosophers I talk about in my book, liberal political mm. philosophers, who were r- roughly speaking when it came to practical politics, social democrats, they often saw their theories as to the left of the welfare state in various ways. Um, I show in my book that they started off as actually to the right, right to the welfare state, but you know, that's another story. But one of the things that you see in the 1970s. 70s, is is this cohabitation. Um, They're actually picking out little bits of various neoliberal ideologies, particularly market ideologies. Mm. They think, okay, markets are here to stay. We need to try and work out how to bring market reasoning into our theories. And I think, actually, while you had this relationship between liberal egalitarianism taking up well liberal egalitarianism on the one hand and a kind of rising to dominance neoliberalism on the other hand or rising right on the other hand they seem to cohabit and at the moment i think we've seen that coming apart Mm. um and it's not clear where they go back together and if they i mean maybe it's a very welcome thing they've come apart but it it does seem that This trajectory of cohabitation has finished, and I think that
0: cohabitation of what of of, of liberals and
2: liberals and neoliberals, the right. Um, I I think that you know, though I think that well, one of the things that this leads me to think about and wanting to ask Mm. you is there. There's a lot of debate about how much populism Mm. can be understood as a real break with neoliberalism Mm. and the kind of right wing Thatcherite in this country policies that we've, you know, been become familiar with or whether it's a continuation. And therefore, maybe it's not true that the social liberals should see this that differently Mm. to the way they saw earlier forms of.
0: Yeah. The, yeah, I think amazing. the thing about that breaking part of the cohabitation, I think is very interesting because I think it I mean, so going back to 1979, when the LRB was born, and mm. um, uh, there was a new prime minister that year, um, there was, um, uh, you know, there is a sort of interesting moment, which I think Thomas Piketty's work has, has really kind of brought home to, to lots of people with his, his book, Capital in the 21st Century, which is one of the problems of finance capital in particular is that it accumulates of its own accord and therefore, it, it just grew, you know, it grew, Piketty's famous um, discovery in that book is that the rate of return on capital is greater than the growth in economic production, which means that simply by owning a house, owning shares, owning uh, other types of assets, your wealth is going up by more than the economy is, is, is growing. Now, this means that the anchoring of neoliberalism or of, or of a sort of finance led market liberalism mm-hmm. in a shared vision of society, gets harder and harder every year that passes. So it was possible in 1979 for Thatcher to make a kind of an argument that it wasn't that different maybe from from rules. In a sense, maybe... No, okay. No, but but, but okay. but, But there was at least it was possible to appeal to a sort of rules of the game type... Analysis, which is, which of course New Labour was able to play very heavily with the vision of meritocracy, which is that everyone's in the game. You know, there are these kind of left neoliberals, it yeah. sounds odd, but there are these, these people in the, particularly in French neoliberalism, people like Rougier and others, for whom the state has this constant role to get people back into the game. You know, mm-hmm. if you get sick, you get dusted down, you get chucked back into the game. If you get unemployed, you get retrained and chucked back into the game. So the game. It sounds like The Wire. If anyone's, uh, (laughs) you get you constantly get sort of retrained, improved, re-energized by you know the welfare state life coaches teachers and so on and put back into the game. But that vision that society is a game, which you talk uh, early on in the book in relation to Wittgenstein and Frank Knight and all this fascinating stuff about that. Um, But that vision of society is a game. Neoliberalism can plausibly make that claim. But if you spoke to my undergraduate students and said, yeah, society is a game and everyone starts at you know, the the beginning line in the same way, they would just laugh at you. I mean, it's just completely implausible. And that is heavily to do with the role of asset appreciation over the last 40 years. So in that sense, assets and Piketty's story about capital, I think is crucial to that separation that you were talking about between um liberalism and neoliberalism. And I assume that liberal political philosophers didn't pay a lot of attention. I mean, economists didn't either, to be fair. So, you know, but that that thing, which is what is going on when you're, the value of your house is earning more income than your job? You know what, or, or certainly going up by more, by, by more in value. Which was, you know, something I I read a review of Melinda Cooper's book in the LRB last year called Family Values, which is a brilliant one of the best books on neoliberalism. It's the best. Um and it's about, in a sense, the fact that the family ends up becoming a far more important sort of agent in this in this story of the last forty years mm. than than the labour market, in fact. Because actually the labour market doesn't get you sort of, you know, where you want to end up. It's actually sort of assets and the way they get
2: transferred. Yeah, so just to zoom back mm. a bit maybe so the rules of the game metaphor as a metaphor for for society mm. so in the 1940s and 50s a lot of early neoliberals people who wanted to protect capital markets above all mm. um really conceived of society as, as a rule, as a game rather than as a kind another kind of um system and the idea there was to say that actually a game is self-regulating, so you don't need the state planning and controlling the economy. And actually, the, John Rawls ended up being quite friendly to the state. He thought there should be, you know, in practice, his, his theory demanded quite a lot of redistribution, pre-distribution, as Ed Miliband made yeah. famous. But he was very sympathetic to this idea of society as self-regulating. And that is something you see within various kinds of neoliberal thought throughout the second half of and and later 20th century the disagreement between neoliberals and more egalitarian liberals is what kinds of things do people need to get have an equal chance of playing the game well and so uh Egalitarian will say, well, they need all these good things and they need all these different social goods. Where I think some of the kind of more hardened neoliberals will say, well, nothing, you know, it's just everyone's out to fight for themselves. And I think that this kind of way of seeing society, if we think about it in that sense, helps us see one of the things that's missing in this discussion about the role of the state to mm. stop political crises. And of course, in our political crisis, it's unclear. Does the state have capacity to stop the kind of political crisis we're in? Um, I think one of the things that the rise of finance capital suggests is maybe it doesn't because Mm. actually real power is elsewhere at the moment. Um, And I think when we kind of try to think about populism in Mm. relation to these dynamics, one thing I want to, pull out of mm. this kind of tangle and ask you to talk about more is whether actually the people who are involved in um various populist movements have a direct relationship to that kind mm. of thinking about I mean are they thinking in these terms well, uh, Brexiters so. I mean I know that so Lobodian, mm. yeah. um historian of neoliberalism has is doing some very interesting work showing that there is a direct line from the bruges group that formed at the end of Thatcher's government into the brexit party and there are lots mm-hmm. of people that were very involved in debates against social the idea of social europe in the in the 1990s who were um Friendly to referenda against, uh, friendly to successionist ideas, this kind of sovereignty of small countries mm. mo- move, and that there's a direct line in terms of personnel to what we see right now. And I wondered if you mm. wanted to speak to
0: yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it, I know some of that, that work that, that, that Quintalobodian is doing, yeah. and it is fascinating and, and quite <laughs> frightening as well with, with some of the lineages there of, of, of how sort of ideas from the, from the far right are also circulating there. One thing we haven't talked about is is, is the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, which was in some ways the sort of public acknowledgement that the state does not act sort of i mean it obviously acted in, in the common good in the sense of providing um, uh, alleviating an emergency, but ultimately that finance has sovereignty of certain kinds mm. that actually that finance the financial sector is has a type of sovereignty that had been developing for some time but which had not been publicly acknowledged, and then suddenly over the autumn of two thousand and eight, it became kind of nakedly apparent that 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 actually the banking system um, had uh, the ability to to sort of press a button that could could blow everything up pretty much. There's a um, the ascendancy of finance by Joseph Virgil is amazing on the sort of history of of of, of the sort of entangling of finance and, and 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 state sovereignty the whole way back to to, to early modern times, but particularly um, in in that period. And I think that in a way. What sort of happened, I suppose, it didn't happen to start with, obviously, it took a few years, but was that sovereignty was, 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 was brought into, was, was rendered a public concern by the events of 2008. And I suppose you could say that the populists, um, because after all, populism says that sovereignty lies with the people it's not true. I mean, sovereignty doesn't... I mean, in this country, I mean, constitutionally, it's not true. Jacob Rees-Mogg goes around saying sovereignty lies with the people. It's not constitutionally a fact. It's not, you know, sovereignty does not. It lies with the crown, and she gives it to, to Parliament. I mean, that this is the sort of literal constitutional understanding of it. In a de facto sense of, of who has the right to declare some kind of exception, you could say that it lies in corners of the city of London. Um, but the idea that it kind of lies with the people, you could say is a, just a rhetorical ploy, in a sense. Um, and in that sense, you know, although it, I think it's perfectly fair that populist scholars talk about populism as a mode of rhetoric, which is how a lot of, you know, people like Jan-Werner Muller and, and Kas Mada talk about it as as the rhetoric that is deployed. To say that actually, you know, these mobilizations um, are, a mo- are, 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 you know, the, the ideal of sovereignty is actually real. You know, you could say that actually there's a certain sort of propaganda involved. Do you, I mean, do you, is that, but I know that's not quite what you're getting at, but do you do you, do you agree with that?
2: Um...
0: I, I mean, they're backers, of course. The people who are backing them, yes, lots of them are people making quite illicit types of money from an absence of regulation, and they want less regulation. That that is also the case.
2: Yeah, I think that it's it's quite helpful to see the current political crisis, both in the, con- in, the in, a, in a in a broader international context, and therefore in the context of the financial mm. crisis of two thousand seven to eight. Um, whether that means that the populism global populism of 2016 mm. um is a kind of dressed up version of uh older forms of right wing politics with a different kind of rhetoric or whether it's something really new I'm, i i th- i'm not quite mm. sure yet mm-hmm. but i do think that we i we should be thinking about to Brexit in the context of 2007 to 8, but also in this longer qu- lineage of transformations within the Conservative Party. And actually the, mm. it's, I think, in this sense, important to see Brexit and populism around Brexit within the, con- within the context of um, how it seems to maybe be solving or maybe not solving a crisis within the Conservatives, mm. but also that it has le- lineages within the Thatcher Era, but also perhaps broadening it out to think, if to go back to where I um, began when I mm. was talking about my book, as having this, you have this uh, moment of post-war liberalism, and then this crisis in the seventies, and go on going on with how how does Brexit and the financial crisis really relate to that periodization mm. of? liberalism and crisis Mm. do we think that now 2016 marks a break 2007 to 8 was that the break was the break 1989 we forget about 1989 Mm. (laughs) well was was the break 1971 and i think Mm. that in in this sense i think we want to be trying and I to to go back to the LRB 40 years I mean the LRB has been trying for 40 years in many respects to try to take longer views on Mm. these kinds of questions of political crisis I don't know where you come down on these kind of well I mean I think
0: one of the big problems I think with 2008 was it wasn't allowed to become a crisis I mean it was sort of it was an emergency not a crisis I mean this is what Adam Tooze's crashed is you know makes goes into the a sort of almost like a rhetorical analysis of what Geithner and Paulson and everyone was saying at that time was, we are now the firefighters. We are now the sort of army. This is Vietnam. This is not, and they, they sort of positioned themselves as, as, as emergency, um, um, uh, sort of heroes rather than as, as, um, what happened in the 70s between 73 and, and sort of 79 was people had a long time to think about inflation and think about, I mean, the, you know, the neoliberals have been discussing it for a lot longer than that, but there was a long period of time when people tried out different ideas and eventually, um, the, the, the neoliberal ideas, um, were in the ascendancy. But I think, you know, 2008 was a sort of crisis that was not allowed to become a crisis. And I think that partly was why Eight years later, this political crisis bubbled up to the extent that it did was that the sort of sheer sense of, of outrage, um, that, and there is actually empirical political science showing that, you know, that in terms of attitudes and feelings of injustice, that actually, although people say, oh, you know, populism's about identity, it's not about economics. Actually, it, it's clearly about both. And actually, there is really interesting research about, you know well clearly things like quantitative easing were crucial in the, in triggering things like the Tea Party movement and that sort of thing. So the handling of that non crisis as an emergency, I think, was crucial in terms of in terms of what came after. But I suppose what I mean the the I mean the question then I mean so you're you're I think we'll how are we doing? For time? Maybe we'll we'll stop in in sort of um, five minutes or so or something like that. But I just wanted to I just wanted to like begin to wrap things up by. Partly thinking about the end of your, your book, and the book is the book ends with a chapter called "The Limits of Philosophy," and there is a sort of a sort of hint of different kind of ways forward that do not lie in kind of abstraction in the mm. search for sort of um, oh, this, this, this sort of obsession with kind of um, with, with consensus and with 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 sort of establishing these kind of abstract grounds of of, 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 of deliberation. Um, what how else might we write crises than how the Rawlsians wrote the 1960s and the 1970s?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I'm also very interested in other thinkers from the 1960s and 70s who actually, I think, took the opposite approach instead of trying to abstract from crises or, puzz- or trying to abstract from politics by focusing on ethical dilemmas they're much more into what in the Marxist tradition is called conjunctural analysis. Mm. But you might also just say, looking at ideological contexts and thinking about crises in particular ways. Um, And people like Stuart Hall, Juliet Mitchell were doing this kind of work. And, you know, we talk about going back to the 70s in all sorts of ways. But I think we don't talk enough about going back to the 70s in terms of how to write about political crisis. Mm. Because I think these kinds of ways of bracketing, well, really, actually not bracketing away, but going in um, can be a way of narrating Mm -hmm. crisis. And I think, I mean, one of the things that occurred to me while you were talking is something... Uh, I think I said in my little contribution to this, the LRB, Mm. how bad can it get round table, which is that we still are living in this state of emergency. Mm. Brexit is a a state of emergency without really an an emergency. I mean, people in the audience might quibble, but there isn't really an emergency, but there is. we are in this constant state of emergency. Mm. And I think that there's a way in which our analysis, our ways of narrating the crisis are breaking down down because we constantly feel like we're in an emergency yeah. and we need somehow to be able to maybe not abstract, to, um, in, to, the, in the way that philosophy, f- philosophers have done, but get down to a different kind of mm. ideological analysis. And mm. I think the way conjunctural analysis a- analysts do. And I think yeah. you also, well, I think, in that too. I mean, it's
0: funny, um, I do think, um, it's worth, Celebrating the, the LRB on this in, on its birthday, um, which is I think that there are a couple of contributions that things like the LRB do make in this respect. One is, as you say, I mean I suppose the fact that it, it it's able to move at a at a slower pace um, means that it doesn't I suppose risk the sense of nervous state that I'm kind of diagnosing in my in my book of of sort of you know trying to describe something that will be outdated within minutes. Um, uh, because somehow that that particular sensation of the world has changed, um, I think the other thing which we were talking about this you know uh, before before this event, and I was casting my mind back to some of the articles in the l r b that have illuminated something which I don't think any other mainstream publication managed to do, which was some of the more ethnographic ones of of the sort of Donald McKenzie in going Mm. and studying LIBOR um, or high-frequency trading, which I mentioned earlier, or the uh, uh, James Meek and John Lanchester pieces about finance, financial markets, offshoring the the sort of geography of Brexit and that sort of thing. And I think that that, I suppose, is something that relates a little bit to the conjunctural analysis that you're talking about of the, of, of the Stuart Hall tradition. I mean, in a sense, what I suppose what someone like Hall was trying to do and Marxism today was the, was the sort of, um, the, you know, the, the, the iconic home of this kind of thing. And occasionally there have been efforts by places like the New Statesman to try and revive that New Times analysis and so on, um, but which is to try and find the macro in the micro and the micro in the macro, you know, in the sense mm-hmm. that if all you're doing is kind of abstract um, macroeconomic or, or macro legal analysis you don't get that insight into something like LIBOR. If all you're doing and I think it's something that Donald McKenzie sometimes has been accused of a little bit is, 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 is looking at the micro then you don't get the ability to somehow sort of look at the kind of political economic structures above it. So I suppose that's I think clearly what good conjunctural analysis means. I do think that crises of the 21st century require it probably even more than the 1970s because Power now lies in such sort of weird, arcane, obscure um, kind of technical little places, and then there's a question of how do you even get access to them? How do you? And, and Mackenzie's brilliant at sort of hanging out with bankers and getting inside their world over a sort of twenty year period of of building trust and so on. And I think that sort of challenge and how do you inform people of, of where these really secretive centres of power operate? Power isn't just private in the way that neoliberals tried to make it it's also secret increasingly and that's actually something quite different i think it doesn't in- even include the norms of accountability to the to the liberal market um, it's become much more about the hoarding of of of, of knowledge and i think that's a, a huge problem for social science but but but, but especially for For, for liberalism, where the, the source of your power is that you don't reveal what you know. And that clearly is, is, is now both a political strategy for someone like Dominic Cummings, but is also a sort of technological reality for the, for the, for the tech giants of Silicon Valley. Mm. So on that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think on that note, maybe we should open up to questions. Um, Fascinating talk, thank you very much Um, I'm just wondering whether either of you Have considered, and it's somewhat building On what Will was saying about The militaristic view about Sensing change Mm -hmm. The importance of strategy and the responsiveness um, Whether either of you have considered In that periodization How warfare has changed Mm. Because the 1940s Obviously A notion of a crisis and a notion Mm -hmm. of a battlefield were, Were based on what we call conventional warfare. What we see now in the 2010s is a very different kind mm. of warfare.
0: Okay. Well, um, I, I, I can't say I've studied this sociologically or, or historically, but I do think that the very the boundaries of what we count as war are clearly far less clear than they were in the Second World War um, in two senses. One, in as much as people you know there are activities out there which don't involve declaring war like drone strikes and so on which are closer to sort of targeted assassinations than they are to declarations of of war um but on the other hand and i think this is kind of comes back to 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 this populist crisis and some of the discussions that were going on in the house of commons only two weeks ago about the language boris johnson uses about surrender bill and so on is that the, the the metaphors of war have started to become the kind of um have become normalized in in politics and what the language of war does is specifically to harm the grounds of consensus because if you say this is a war rather than a disagreement what you're saying is that a i'm not going to give any ground i'm not going to sort of reach some kind of compromise (laughs) but b i don't want to understand you i don't want to um uh, achieve a common interest with you what i want to do is to defeat you and i think that that, the the as you know, whether it be, you know, troll wars, or, you know, this sort of, this isn't quite what you're talking about. But I do think that the the the, the, the the what we call war, and the expansion of what we call war matters, maybe not as much as the expansion of the technological affordances of war. But nevertheless, I think there is a serious question about a challenge to, to liberalism of not being able to Clearly know what counts as war and what doesn't count as war. And that's actually one of the things that I'm t- trying to grapple with in my book, actually, is exactly this sort of, the fact that, that sort of war and peace have, have become much harder to sort of, uh, uh, to disaggregate. I mean, did the, I mean, the, the nature of the Vietnam War was a big thing for the, for the thinkers in your, your book. Wasn't yeah.
2: It? And it was, it was a nature of, was, the Vietnam War was very important for them, but actually what was important for them was, um, coming up with various way, moral principles to judge how war should be fought. Uh, questions like just war theory comes out or has a resurgence in um, the aftermath of the Vietnam War among liberal philosophers, but they were less interested in the politics of wars. And I think that is something that you see mm. a lot. Um, and Sam Moyne has made this kind of an argument that you get a shift from an emphasis on the politics of war to an emphasis on fighting war as well. And I'm not mm. quite sure how that fits in with the general militarization of our political discourse, which I mm. agree with you about. Um I would also say that I think that the function of war in our, or fu- the function of the idea of war in our politics has changed quite recently. And I think maybe Piketty has something to do with this because there's a sense in which people mm. are now are very aware of this argument that, well, the, you wouldn't have had the wolf- welfare state without... The war, the second world war, the military, the, the investment needed to build up state capacity was need, uh, was the, the warfare state and David Edgerton too. Um, and I, I think that there is the sense when we're talking about emergencies and crisis, Mm. is this crisis, is this emergency going to be the big enough one to change our politics in the way that a war would change our politics. Mm. And I think you can think about that from a kind of transformative, hopeful, optimistic perspective and think, you know, is this the crisis that's going to birth something new or are we in the time of monsters? And Mm. I think that that is that, that fit the, the almost like the figure of war in politics, I think has come to the fore in new ways recently, but that's not quite what you were asking. Thank you very much. I was really interested in Katrina's argument about the need for a kind of conjunctural analysis of the kind undertaken by Stuart Hall in the 1970s. So what I was wondering is, are there any political theorists today who you'd see as undertaking that kind of analysis or offering any kind of way forward? Um, Well, I think there are lots of people doing... well, so so a book that I'm currently reading, so first thing in my head, so Corey Robbins' new book on Clarence Thomas, I wouldn't say it's quite conjunctural analysis, but it is using the tools of political theory um, to do a kind of analysis of, uh, an important analysis of an important ideological figure in America, mm. important political figure in America, which I think brings to bear the uh, high level theory in a way and high level legal philosophy in a way that I think some of the philosophers that i 've been talking about often were reluctant to do and I, so it 's not necessarily a form of conduct juncture analysis per se, but I do think that in ways of thinking about doing political theory in alternative ways, i think it 's quite an interesting model, but I think in general that um, <coughs> You know, one thing, given it's the LRB birthday, I will mention that a lot of the philosophers I would write about did write for the LRB in various ways. And I think that there was a sense in which there was a division of labor. You do your really abstract, um, difficult, technical, philosophical work, and then you can have this public writing. And my question is really... Is that the division of labor we want? Um, should we only be thinking about particular political circumstances when we're, uh, when philosophers are writing for the LRB and getting to <laughs> u- use their philosophical skills and bring it to bear for a public audience? Or do we want to try and work out how to use the philosophical tools to deal with kind of grittiness of politics in different ways?
1: Oh, thanks. Um, A really interesting talk, first of all. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm really curious about uh, what you both think about, um, to put it very simply, uh, the internet's role in all of this. Uh, I've been reading some interesting kind of hypotheses that um, in a sense, the internet with the kind of absolute lack of intersubjectivity that it offers, you know, you can sit there on your own. You could go on Wikipedia and get very irritated in your own mind that someone has just kind of altered truth or reality to change it away from something that you inherently believe. I wonder if there's a sense, would you agree, in which it's perhaps inherently populist? This idea that when you're on there, you can find other people who are as angry as you are about the things that you're angry about. You can find any reality potentially verifiable. Um, And then the sense that the truth is out there somewhere, being hidden from you by some elite, unknowable force. You can can this can this be transcended? Is there is there a way around this? Uh, is it going to have to be something that we work out what to do about? I, I just just as mm. an illustration, I remember unless I completely imagined it, um, there, there was this movement a couple of years ago. I think Hillary Clinton endorsed it, where there was going to be a website where you could get your facts verified and receive a sort of four or five-digit stamp um, <laughs> saying this fact has officially passed through, you know, whatever it was called, and has been returned to you as truth. Yeah, but I don't think it caught on.
0: Uh, it's sort of like a smugness engine, really. No, the internet, you go. I, wasn't, I mean, I think clearly there's been a um, – I mean, the, the internet is a sort of – there's a, there's a wonderful um, line in Richard Seymour's book, um, uh, The Twittering Machine, which is a brilliant book. I reviewed it for The Guardian did so in the summer. Brilliant. and he, he talks about, the, he takes this, The Twittering Machine is a Paul Ray um, painting, um, which he uses as a way of trying to understand this kind of madness that is engulfing us. And um, Seymour talks about it. The, the Twittering Machine is the furnace of meaning, he says. And, the, and it's similar to the Patricia Lockwood um, LRB piece, which I thought was one of the best depictions of being a sort of social media user of just the sort of chaotic sort of fragmentation of, 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 of meaning, which of course is sort of disastrous politically because that what you need to do in order to be able to cope with that sort of world is to get your is to sort of outsource your access to meaning to, to someone else, someone who appears confident enough that they know what's going on. Um, it's not a coincidence that the sort of language of, of 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 Twitter is followers. The point is that it is a sort of a, a hierarchy of of belief as much as anything else, which is that I will follow this person, um, I will be their disciple in some way, and it's a sort of uh, it, it, the, the the technology which allows us to cope with this furnace of meaning and this kind of chaos chaos are, are technologies that effectively put us into small groups which um, uh, reassure us of, of certain beliefs about the world so I mean I think that much is is, is is clearly true I think that the other thing just come back to the previous question about war and this is really what I I, I mean I, I sort of talk about about um, uh, uh, the kind of war of words that is that is sort of online politics in my book which is that you know the, the internet, which, of course, has a military provenance. I mean, it comes via um, uh, it comes via the Pentagon and um, uh, the need to anticipate incoming threats from the air and that sort of thing. Is that it? It, it turns civil society into something like a basis for mobilisation and attack, fundamentally more than what it was. Ho- everyone thought it was going to be. The sort of liberal optimists of the 1990s thought it was going to be a new public sphere. Whereas, in some sense, it's a new battlefield. And I think that those are two sort of utterly different types of things. Um, so that doesn't make for a very positive diagnosis in terms of its impact on liberalism. I'm
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think I broadly agree. Um, I, I think that there's also, but I, I think it's an open question how much the internet really changes, not our experience of politics, I think it changes that hugely, but how much it actually changes much of mm-hmm. what we call politics um, outside of our experience of it. Because if you think about, for example, I mean, we talked about a lot of right-wing populism, we haven't really talked about um left-wing social movements much yet, or We just won't have. Um, But I do think if you take, for example, something like XR, actually, many of the organizational tactics of XR aren't that different. I'm not involved, so I don't know. But aren't that different, to my knowledge, to the camps for climate action of the mid noughties where the Internet wasn't um, possible. Um, sorry, it wasn't part of it. So, in terms of how much the internet changes the relationships among, you know, activists, mm. social movements, um, of course, there. In some senses, it's been, you know, hugely transformative. I think in America, of the movement for back, Black Lives, Me Too mm. is a right. hashtag. But in terms of what Me Too has achieved, is the internet going to have ended up playing? I mean, of course, it plays a role in the sense of it plays a role in all our lives. But I wonder if we can over estimate its contribution to politics. Uh,
0: One thing which, I mean, I I have this idea for a paper I want to write, which is adding another ism into the mix, uh, which is on, on the internet as a space of, of meta liberalism, not rather than post liberalism. (laughs) in, In as much as actually, if you think about what a lot of online political discourse is doing, it is denouncing the institutions of liberalism as being inadequately just, corrupt, not living up to what they're meant to do. The BBC is full of, you know, Remainers, or the BBC is full of Leavers, or Parliament is um, not doing this properly. So in a sense, I mean, maybe it's just the bit of the internet that I inhabit, but there is a, a huge amount of sort of looking down, that's why I say that, upon the institutions of, of the Liberal public sphere and saying, these aren't doing what they're meant to be doing. Now, of course, the problem is that they can't satisfy all of those different needs, because a lot of those needs, what they say by these should be what they should be doing is, they should be doing exactly what I insist they should be doing. So there's a sort of breakdown of perspective there as well. But a lot of it is sort of there's a kind of there's a spirit of denunciation and of and there's studies actually showing of how tweets which have a lot of what they call moral emotion in, in sentiment analysis terms travel much, much further than those which have low moral emotion. So mm-hmm. if you say I mean, I know this from my own use of Twitter. If you say something that, bad about the BBC, you get retweeted everywhere. If you say something good about the BBC or just factually true about the world, no one gives a shit. And so it's like denunciation of the institutions of the sort of bourgeois liberal public sphere is the sort of, is the kind of modus operandi of a lot of, of, of social media, certainly. I don't know. it <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Yeah. This is a question about um, the geographical scope or scale of the stories and analyses you're giving um, perhaps especially to Katrina so uh, Katrina your book offers a really rich story about a anglophone discourse and one that stretches into Europe as well so I, I suppose part of my question this is for William as well is: do you see the take up of this phase of sort of liberal, liberalism and technocracy picked up outside of Europe and America. And the thing that got me thinking about this is that there's a, there's a wide scholarship now on the uptake of liberalism mm. from an earlier epoch in India and across mm-hmm. the rest of the world from scholars like Christopher Bailey or Andrew Sartori. Do you see anything like that happening with this set of discourses you're talking about?
2: Well, I'm just actually going to say something that was said to me two days ago by Shruti Kapila, who made the very perceptive point that the Rawlsian liberaliz- liberal story that I'm telling is actually the story of the first non-global liberalism, because actually liberalism mm. in the 19th century was a form of, often took a utilitarian form, government, house, colonial, mm. utilitarian liberalism, and actually come the 50s and 60s, after John Rawls, it gets modelled on the United States. And of course, you know, then you have exporting democracy, a kind of idea of modernization. And with America at its um, helm baked in to liberalism, but it's not global in its aspirations in that sense. I mean, you know, perhaps all liberalisms are global in their aspirations, but it's not deliberately so. So in that sense, I mean, I'm really um, not trying to tell a story that goes beyond the anglophone world, Um and I'm not sure I can speak that well to it. And I can speak to the ways in which the idea of the the non West features back into liberalism, which is, I think, in various different ways, it becomes a kind of outer edge um, and, um, you know, a, a kind of site of a crucible of progress for them in this kind of old fashioned kind of modernization theory kind of way. But I'm not sure about how it, uh, how, does what to say about beyond, but
0: yeah. maybe no. I mean, I, no. I, I, I mean, I can't speak with um, having studied this. I'm afraid. So, yeah. I,
3: uh. um, you both touched on the concept of consensus as a kind mm. of central part of liberalism. Um, I'm wondering if you think that of what do you think of the idea that liberalism actually has consensus fundamentally mischaracterized? So, mm. liberalism in the Rawlsian version, or will in your book, you describe it really well has this view, particularly the technocratic view of liberalism, which is consensus is something we reach before we make decisions. Mm. But actually what consensus is, is a realisation afterwards that most people have bought into what you've done as a politician. Mm. So uh, in my home country in Australia, when John Howard first got in, in 1996, he didn't have consensus. What he had was an electoral coalition, Mm. like a coordination, as you say in your book, right? Right. But when he left office twelve years later, he had fundamentally changed the way the majority of Australians view their society. So do you think that I is think, a mis- yeah. That's like one of the fundamental flaws of this technocratic liberalism that we've seen.
0: It's very, yes, I mean, it's a very interesting point. And I think, of course, I mean, people would make the same claim about Thatcher, I think, as well, in some ways, that that's what the Gramscians-like Hall would talk about as hegemony in some ways, was that you don't start with it. You have to sort of gradually cultivate it using civil society and so on. Um, but I think that you're right. I think that the vision of consensus that technocrats subscribe to might be more like the consensus of the scientific establishment, where effectively it begins from the premise of that this is not democratic. Scientific the scientific establishment is anything but democratic. It has to exclude the vast majority of people and that's the basis of its of its consensus. And that I suppose is the sort of what technocracy falls into the trap of thinking that government is closer to a scientific laboratory than to a parliament in some sense. And that's I think maybe what 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 you're sort of gesturing towards. But it's a it's a very interesting Point.
1: I mm.
2: yeah i would just say that to to be fair to the Rawlsians, they never really thought that a consensus <gasps> was existing they thought mm. that it did have to be earned um but they the point was that they wanted to just that ju- arguments had to be justified in terms which in which people could agree so there was always a possibility and a potential for consensus baked into any vision of society and in that sense i think we might ask you know maybe it is true that that kind of consensus can only ever be seen after the fact. And maybe it shouldn't be a kind of constant guiding aim of our politics. Maybe there are certain things that you just need to accept that there will be partisanship, or mm. you know, there are sides, and maybe that those kinds of um, <laughs> declarations that you see, maybe you might will might call them populist. I'm not sure, um, but you know that, that there are sides, and that perhaps the consensus is there only ever um, norms once they are settled. Mm. That's what a consensus is. But actually, co- politics is about constantly interrogating and battling to settle the norms.
0: Mm. So. <laughs> Um, are we going to wrap up yeah yes, Yeah. oh sorry <laughs> We're, we weren't sure that was either of our jobs <laughs> um,
2: I'll just dive in and say thank you um, to Katrina Follister and William Davis thank you very much um, both authors books are here as is the London Review of Books and Incomplete History so please come and have a look and avail yourselves for those at the end um, and before you do please thank our guests thank you so much for being here thank you